episode a triple g gingers gridiron and golf podcast we are in the midst of it we've got preseason nfl football week two done we've got training camps we've got covid guys being sent home but most importantly welcome back we've got the old boy in the house old boy you there i am here big guy how are you tonight i'm fantastic and yourself I'm, I'm hanging in, man. It's good. I'm enjoying, you know, a little bit of preseason balls and training camp, a little bit of hard knocks. It's good. Ball's back, man. Now we just got to get that border open so we can get down to the Ralph and hopefully catch a game in the next couple months, right? So, Well, let's hope. Let's hope. But if, uh, if any indication there, we were chatting off air, uh, Cole Beasley, Gabe Davis, and a bunch of guys getting sent home uh, not a good, not a good start here as we approach week one for uh, no. for Buffalo Bills and their their COVID uh, procedures. I am with you on that one. Let's hope that they can. You know, I'm glad it happened now and not week one and or not even later on this season. Hopefully, they can try and figure this thing out and, and write the ship. And because you know we can get into it in greater detail, but this team's so locked and loaded and ready to go that you know at this point now you almost feel like it's going to be themselves standing in their own way here. If something like this was to blow up at the worst part of the year. Otherwise, if they're fully fit and ready to go, they should be in for a long haul again this year, right? So, no doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Well, boy, what did you? Uh, let's hop right into it. We're going to get into the new segment, uh, what we learned, and let's talk about what we learned in week two of NFL preseason football. What stood out to you, and what did you learn? Ah, you know what, man. For me, I think I've been really paying been paying close attention to some of these quarterback battles, and even some of these, you know, first year quarterbacks. Just in terms of you know, where they are in their development and, and if they're, we're going to see them, you know, in week one or when that may be, right? So, you know, like the classic example would be, I guess, what Matt Nagy and the, and the staff in Chicago came out this week saying that, you know, Andy Dalton's our, our guy in uh, in week one. And I get that, right? Like, you know, I think as a, as a Bears fan, you're looking at that. And listen, the Bills came in to Soldier Field and smoked them. And at that point, it didn't really matter who was playing. Neither one of those quarterbacks really stood out. But, you know, athletically and in terms of, just giving you a little bit more of a dynamic play caller back there. It's hard to argue that Fields isn't the guy, but you know they got they got the Rams week one, right? And you really want to line that kid up week one, and you can see that a lot of these guys are still learning, right? Like it's there's that big step up. Even if you're even if you were playing, you know, Big Ten ball like like Fields was, and uh, you know it's good for them to kind of you know sit and hold a clipboard for you know three four weeks or so, and then eventually get ready to go. I think you can say the same thing with someone like Trey Lance and San Fran. I think that's probably going to be sooner rather than later but you know even Lawrence in Jacksonville right like yep it's the same he thing. had his struggles he had his struggles right and I think you know surprisingly of all of them right I think the kid you can say so far has looked you know looked the cleanest is I think the one that everyone thought was gonna have the hardest time making the jump which is you know Zach Wilson in, in New York like he looked really crisp in that uh, second game against Green Bay seems to have some nice chemistry with Corey Davis like I don't know. We'll see how these kids shape up, but that's one thing I'm kind of keeping an eye on because it being such a great quarterback class with, what, five of them drafted in the first round, I think it was, or four, I think, four or five, five? Five, five. yeah. 
So we'll see how that shakes down. And then, and then looking at some of these other battles where you have a couple of teams in flux, whether it be Denver or New Orleans or whatnot, where you have these kind of 1A, 1B, you know, shootouts. Uh, and just kind of seeing, you know, who ends up taking the reins heading into week one. Because, you know, for both of those teams, right, there's a lot of pieces elsewhere on those squads. Uh, I've been here on this podcast a bunch of times going on and on about the talent offensively in Denver, right? And if they could find a guy that could just, you know, manage a game and get the ball out there where it needs to be, like, there's no reason why that offense can't take a big step, right? So I think it's safe to say it's probably going to be famous Jameis in, in New Orleans. I think, you know, he looked great, you know, last night. Yep. Absolutely. That one bomb that he threw there to, uh, to Callaway was beautiful, right? Like, you know, and, and you get the pedigree with that guy. No, number one overall pick, like, you know, pocket passer, big arm. Like, I think it's going to be a lot harder for them to come in every week, you know, with, um, with what's his name there, the other young guy out of BYU. Uh, Taysom Hill and yeah. and and not have defenses scheme him up. Like I think he's a gadget guy, and I think for the, him to roll for Peyton to roll him out seventeen weeks in a row, I think eventually that thing's just going to run dry. I don't know how you can possibly run him out. He's just he's just too one dimensional and too limited in terms of what he can do. I think Winston's going to give those guys you know the best chance to win and have more of a you know a true pro, a pocket presence with more of that traditional skill set, right? Just dropping back and, and slinging it all over the field, right? How about you, man? What did you? What have you been learning here, at least in week two? What, what kind of were you keeping an eye on? Well, you know what, and what I learned is is, and I don't know necessarily if I learned it, old boy, but but I was reminded of it, and I remember to tell myself all the time in in preseason football and and because this is it's going to get down to you know this is eventually going to be an 18 week season here um the the football and and covid has shown these coaches and shown the nfl that they first off they don't need four games now we don't really need three games it's gonna find that sweet spot two games be done with it and then an 18 game season right and i'm reminded of to really pay attention to where where your specific team is at, whether you're a Bears fan, whether you're a Falcons fan, whether you're a Bills fans, a Vikes fans, whoever. But you know, where teams are at and, and like you talked about in their development, what are they what are they looking for? What are they trying to do on a week to week basis? To me that that Bear squad was was trying to piece together an offensive line and they were trying to, you know, find who their best five starters were. They were they were subbing guys in left, right, and center. And Buffalo just flat out took advantage of that. And and Buffalo was playing for a lot more. So on paper or, or after that game, you look at that score and, you know, at halftime you're sitting there going, oh, my God, 34 to 6. This is a whitewash. But it's two teams going in two different directions looking to get two different things out of that football game. You know, Buffalo's looking to settle the score for Trubisky and playing for a little bit more. And the Bears are, are trying to find themselves an offensive line that they can put in front of. Andy Dalton or Justin Fields and feel that they can still win a football game. Um, did they find it in that game? No, they didn't. They definitely didn't. But um, I'm reminded the fact that, you know, whether these games are played and, and when they're played, you know, what is your team doing? What are they looking for? What are they playing for? And what's actually happening, I think, is a key point because you get these these 35 to nothing like the New England game and and, you know, Teams are just going in different directions, and you know, try not to read too much into that. I think is what I uh, what I learned and what I was reminded of in preseason football. Well, hundred percent, and also too, you don't know what these guys are keeping, you know, under lock and key, right? What aren't they showing you? What little wrinkle are they not showing you? Like the, the example I was thinking off the top is Sam Fran and, and Trey Lance. That guy's not running the ball yet. That guy has a chance, 
you know, when, when Shanahan fully opens them up and lets them like, lets them really go free once, whatever that may be, if it's a month in yep. the season, if it's eight weeks in, that guy's going to beat you with his legs. And he was sitting back and making him go through the reps of trying to, you know, go through those progressions and actually throw the ball rather than, Hey, if my first read's not there, tuck it and just start boogieing. Cause the guy has the potential to be, you know, kind of Lamar Jackson esque in terms of like, you know, a thousand yard rushing type quarterback. But they weren't showing you that because, you know, Shanahan is he's going to keep that in his back yep. pocket and he's going to show it to you for the first time when you see him. Right. So, yeah, I, I'm with you on that one for sure. It's fun watching the ball and it's fun, you know, looking at things and oh, you know, you want to win these games when you want to lose them. But at the same time, it's all about, like you said, what are these teams trying to accomplish, you know, when they when they head into it. Right. So, 100%. yeah, and it's it's that whole that whole mantra where, you know, sometimes you get on a on a on a extra week or a short week coming off of a bye week, they'll start practicing for that team. You know, when we're talking mid-season now, they'll start practicing. They'll take, you know, uh, coming off on a bye week, they'll take Monday and Tuesday, and they'll practice for the the game coming up on the short week. So, for instance, if Buffalo's playing the Jets on a Thursday night, coming off of a bye, they got a little Monday-Tuesday time, they're, they're going to practice for that team. So it's that type of mentality in terms of, you know, what you're seeing on the preseason field, like, you know, they could be scheming plays for a team that's within their division that they're going to be playing um, or if for the Bills sake, the Pittsburgh Steelers or whatever it may be. So they're scheming for something totally different or uh, against a different scheme than what they're actually playing that week. Right. For sure. For yeah. sure. At this well, point, let's get into our, um, and get healthy, right? That's all it is. Get out of it, get healthy. Don't lose anyone to injury and then away you go. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's segue over now to our uh, our divisional breakdown. We're going to take a look at both East, and that's the NFC East and the uh, the AFC East. Oh boy, let's uh, let's start it off with a team that's near and dear to your heart, and that's the Washington Football Team. Um, first off, give me your thoughts overall on the uh, the division in its entirety, and then let's uh, let's hone in here on Washington and what uh, what your thoughts are. Yeah, well, you know, I think. You know, really, I don't think it's going to be that much better than it was last year. I wouldn't be surprised if you see the division winner again, you know, come out in and around 500, right? I think they're going to probably beat up on each other. There really isn't anyone that really, I think, separated from the bunch. Um, I like what Washington did. Like we talked about Fitzpatrick coming in here in terms of being that just a little bit of extra in terms of, you know, being a more of a pure play uh, let's call it, you know, just, he's a playmaker, right? At the end of the day, he's going to sling it around a little bit. They have weapons there, obviously, with McLaurin and whatnot. Like, I love that offense. I think it's underrated. I think they're going to be right there. And you got the best, you got the best defensive front line, you know, in the whole NFL, right? With four recent number one picks along that line, you know, spearheaded by uh, by your boy Chase Young. So I, I, I think they're going to end up being the creme de la creme in that division. And again, that's the caveat there being, I'm not fully sure you're going to see a healthy Dak at all this year. Right. Like all this, all this language coming out of the Dallas now about him not being fully ready to go. And he's still, you know, whether it be the shoulder or the ankle from last year, it's just, I'm worried that he's already hurt and banged up. And because otherwise that team, you know, if you assume that they've made enough improvement on the defensive side with, you know, using their first six picks in the draft this year on defense, you know, kind of spearheaded again with Micah Parsons, who looks like the real deal in the middle there. That guy's going to be a playmaker. Right. Um, there's a team that if Dak was fully healthy, that you could end up having, you know, Zeke come back looking fit, looking ready to go, although not probably the focal point of that offense anymore if Dak's healthy. 
you get him having three three wideouts with over a thousand yards receiving, right? There's no reason why if Dak's fully healthy, that guy's not throwing for well over four thousand yards, and you get you know Gallup, Lamb, and uh, and, and Cooper. Cooper all over a yep. thousand yards, right? Like for them, it's all about the defense, and and that's I think what it is is at the end of the day that Washington defense is just that much better, and I think. The, the offense, assuming Dak's not fully healthy, like who's the backup there? Was Garrett Gilbert, like Ben DiNucci? Like they got nothing. Like I'm actually shocked that Dallas doesn't go out right now and call up Jacksonville, call up someone like go get Gardner Mitchell, go get someone in there as an insurance policy, pay like a fifth or sixth round pick for a guy to come in who can maybe give you a little bit extra if if Dak's not ready to go, right? Or if he gets hit and he's out again for an extended period of time because there's so much offensive weapons there that. It'd be a shame for them to have to throw the whole thing down the drain if he's not ready to go. And then yeah, you, you got to find know. someone to distribute distribute the ball to those weapons, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I I think you know what? Like I, I like Washington a lot. I think it, I think you know Heineke was a really nice story last year, but I think it is going to be Fitzpatrick. Uh, I'm not sure if that's been you know anointed yet. If not, it, it's it's probably right there, ready to be anointed in the near future. But I like Washington. I like what they did there. I think, you know, Samuel's a nice little piece there out of Carolina. Nice gadget piece. Antonio Gibson's going to take another step forward as well, too. Like, you're hearing all these things now out of Washington camp about how they're going to open the playbook even more for this kid because, you know, there's a guy, I think, what, he came out of college out of Memphis with, what, like 40 carries in his career? Like, yep. it was ridiculous. Like, he was more of, like, a gadget guy to the backfield catching passes. He wasn't used to, you know, getting the ball – you know, hand it off in like a power eye, you know, running through between the tackles, right? So I think I, I think I'm high in that skins team. I think or the, the Washington football team. I think they're gonna end up being probably like a nine or ten win team this year. I think them coming into Buffalo week three, like watch out, man. That's gonna be a tough game for, for Buffalo to have them come up and, and play them because you know that defensive line is gonna be all over, you know, that Bills old line and you know Josh is gonna have to make sure that he's not you know, taking his happy pills that day when all that pressure comes up the gut, right? Like being secure with the ball and whatnot. I know we don't get too far into that game already, but they they got a nice little team here. Like, what are you thinking here? Like, I think the way I see this thing lining up is Washington, Dallas, New York Giants, and then I think uh, the Eagles probably bring it up this year and up the rear. I just feel like they're just not there. They're in the middle of that transition right now, and I think, you know, with Sirianni there, he's going to he's gonna have at least a couple of years here to try and figure out, A, is hurts my guy, and B, you know, how do we kind of infuse this roster with more talent and bring it back up to the rest of the group? You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's, you know what, it's, when you look at the division in its entirety, there's an embarrassment of riches of skills players in this division. Like, like you, you, you named a few, like McLaren and Samuels and Adam Humphreys and like Gibson. And then you, you, like you said, you moved to Dallas with the three and a monster and Zeke. And then you go even with the Eagles with uh, Devante and Jalen Rager and, and you got Hurts that's a that a, was a weapon with his feet. Then you go to the Giants, Kenny Galladay and Shepard and Slayton and Kadarius Tony. Um, John Ross is there. You know Kyle Rudolph. Everything like the 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 skill positions in this division are absolutely unreal and probably go toe to toe with any other division in football. But I I kind of circled two things on my sheet, old boy that that I think are ultra important and and there's no argument to me that that and i had the same note as, as you did that the washington redskins have not only the best front four but the best front seven in football and i think they've got a quiet kid in jamin davis that I, i'm telling you right now old boy he's my my star pick for defensive rookie of the year because i think with that front four 
that kid's just going to be able to roam sideline to sideline. Yeah. He's just going to be a tackling machine. The numbers are going to be through the roof. And um, and look out for him for your defensive rookie of the year. Kind of a little bit of a sleeper pick. But the two things I circled were offensive line for everybody in the division, and I'll explain that in a minute, and coaching. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you, even look at, you even look at the Washington team. You know, that left side of that old line, it, you, you know, Charles Leno Jr. and, and um, uh, what, I can't even pronounce it, but Schwelzer, uh, West Schwelzer. Like, that's a little bit shaky. Um, I know they've got, you know, Big B, Brandon Sheriff coming back. Mm-hmm. But, and then you go to the Cowboys. They try to get younger. Zach Martin's coming off that injury. They try to get younger on the interior um, offensive line with Connor Williams and, and Tyler B at, at, uh, at center. And Isaac... Uh, Alicorn or Alicorn at um, at right guard. You know you still got the big Tyron Smith and and Lalel Collins on, as your bookend tackles, but some question marks on on that interior offensive line. Who knows what's happened on the offensive line with the, with the Eagles veteran squad? Can they hold up? Um, Brandon um, Brandon Brooks coming off of in, a huge injury last year, and then the Giants who have been trying to piece together of offensive line for the last three four years since Dave Gettleman walked through the door from Carolina. So I think a big point for this entire division is who's going to have the healthiest and the most productive offensive line that can trot out the same five guys week in and week out and allow their quarterback, whether it's going to be a running attack or traditional drop back or whatever it may be, distribute to the, the ball to the embarrassment of riches in this division and coaching. And I give the coaching edge to that Washington team. Like you said, you got, mm-hmm. you, you know, you got uh, Ron Rivera there, Jack Del Rio, Scott Turner. I know he's a young offensive coordinator, but he's been around football for years. As you compared to, you go over to the Eagles side, you got Nick Sirianni and, and oh boy, you know me, I've been around football for a long time and, and seen a lot of staffs through and, and know a lot of the back end stuff. I don't recognize one coaching name on his roster. No, no, me, me neither. It's a lot of young guys. I guess he's he's bringing in his he's bringing in his guys now, right? And 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 I don't know. Like the thing with that Eagles team that, that gets me, man, is I don't know. I just the like the big thing for them is the, first of all, is they got to figure out is Hurts our guy. If Hurts isn't the guy, then you got to now they're gonna have the draft capital. Like the one I keep thinking about here is. Are they quietly a team? Not not even quietly at this point. I think now they've been pretty much rumored that if this whole thing with Deshaun Watson clears up and there's some type of a conclusion reached in that case, what's happening off field, does he find a way into Philly? Because that would be a really nice spot for him to land. Um, well, let's see. I think I think Hurts quietly, I think for him, is he just got to become a better passer of the ball, right? I think. He like a lot of these like mobile athletic quarterbacks in their first year, um, they got to become more con- comfortable going through those progressions and not just tucking it and running. You know when that first receiver, that first option's not there. Like the whole Devonta Smith thing, I like it. The kids, you know, he, he looked great at Bama for all those years that he was there. The problem is that you know he wasn't really there with Hurts. Like I know there's he put up a lot of his numbers with Tua and with Mac Jones, right? So it'll be interesting yep. to see kind of you know what type of chemistry he can you know establish with Hurts and. If Rager takes a step, like that's a pick there. That man, it, it hurts. Say, eh? like, I'm yep. not saying you swung and missed on the kid just yet, but when you see these other guys in the first round last year go off, and you got a guy like Rager who really never fully established himself, it's like you, you need him to take a step, right? But you're right on, on both sides of the ball. Like, I know they're getting it's it's an aging, you know, team on both sides of the ball there in Philly. We you know you got guys like you know Brandon Graham, Fletcher Cox on the defensive side, and 
you know, Kelsey and whatnot. These guys have all been in the league for over 10 plus years, right? Like it's, can they stay healthy? Can they stay consistent? But the Philly team's going to play tough. You know, they're going to play tough. That's just how the Eagles play ball, right? They're going to be in your face. They're going to play, you know, hopefully pretty tough on both sides of the ball. It's just, I just feel like from a skill perspective, they're just not really there where the other three teams are at. They're, they're, they're a very clear fourth place team for me. I, I do think, I, I think the Giants got better enough offensively. And I, I'm actually, you know, like Joe Judge, listen, last year they started 0-5, but he had them playing hard and they finished 6-10. and And I think, you know what, like watch out, you know, like I think that Giants team, if they can figure it out under center, and like you said, if they can get a better year from that offensive line, like Andrew Thomas has got to be a guy, man. That guy was the first offensive lineman mm-hmm. taken last year in the draft. Yep. you got to show me something, man. Like that big boy out of Georgia just never really fully – you know, you want to be a left tackle? Like, show me, right? Like, show me you can be, like, a dominant presence in there and keep your kid upright and keep him clean, right? So, yeah, I don't know. I think it's going to be a fun division. Again, I really do. I'm, I'm hoping that Dak's healthy. Just because that Cowboy team, like, how fun are they going to be to watch, man, if he is healthy and they're slinging it around? Like, that's going to be arguably the most exciting offense in football if, if he's healthy, ready to go. So, Well, we saw it in the first uh, the first few weeks last year with Dak, right? How, how um, you know, how dynamic that offense can be. I'm I'm breaking it down. I agree with you. Washington's uh, taking it again. I'm having Dallas with a close second, then the Giants with improvement, and then I agree with you. The Eagles are uh, Eagles are number four in that division. Let's segue over now to the East, old boy. And we ended off there with Joe Judge in New York, and I want to go to I think who I believe is going to be our both our number four picks in the AFC East. But I want to talk about continue on that front with the offensive line. You know how I like my big uglies. You love I think, the, I, I, uh, I think the New York Jets have the potential to have a Pro Bowl Hall of Fame left side offensive line here in the next five years. Makai Becton, Elijah Vera Tucker, who was the, the 16th overall pick uh, this year, or 17th overall pick um, when the Jets traded back up to get him in the, the mid to late first round. How good is that offensive line? They get Connor McGovern coming in. The Jets, the Jets are building something here. I know, I know, we both are probably going to have them as as our number four squad there. But you know, you got Corey Davis coming over from Tennessee. I didn't understand the Elijah Moore pick, but all we're hearing is good things out of camp from him and how dynamic he's been and how good of a worker he is. Um, you've still got Crowder there. Denzel Mills, uh, Mims takes the next step. You draft Wilson with that uh, when, with your first overall pick in the first round, not the, not the first overall pick, but yeah, the second the overall, first, yeah, 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 second overall, their first pick. Um, I, they're building something, man. I, I, I don't know if it's going to be here in 2021, but I like what the Jets are doing. No, listen, man. I was saying the same thing the day to a buddy of mine is that I think Joe Douglas is doing a great job in New York. I think. He learned, or he's learned from his mistakes, and they weren't his mistakes, but the franchise mistakes of what they did with Darnold, where you know you bring in that kid, you know, high pedigree, but you don't do the proper thing to support him with, you know, good line, good weapons, good play caller, right? Like you bring in Lafleur, you like it. Just I think they're doing the thing. They're they're, they're doing they're do they're doing the Buffalo Bills thing. You know, they're they're literally yeah. doing it to a T, right? It's go invest in draft capital in offensive weapons and in the line and go get some consistency, you know, in terms of play calling, creative play calling. And I think you you swing on a kid that comes from a smaller program, but has great arm talent. I think the thing there, and it's, it's kind of similar. I'm not saying that he's a Josh. He's not Josh. Josh is 
way more physically gifted than Zach Wilson, but he's got a great arm. Um, but it's the same thing, like smaller school, lesser competition. It's hard to know how is that going to translate to the pro game. I think the thing between Josh and him ultimately, though, is, you know, Josh is, you know, kind of, you know, humble background, blue collar farmer type thing from rural California kind of really fit and gelled well with Western New York. It's what's this, you know, Mormon kid from BYU from Utah. Yeah. How's that going to jive with Manhattan and the Big Apple? That's the one thing is like, are the papers going to chew this kid up if, you know, he throws a couple picks and, and has a rough start and, you know, cause they're not expected to do well this year. They are expected to finish in the bottom of the basement of that division, but I think they could surprise. I think it's not going to be a two-win team this year. They're going to be probably like a five, six, seven-win team, and they're yeah, going to push you. It's going to be they, they're going to be a tougher out this year for sure. Yeah, and, and mostly coming back on defense. You know, they got the, the two injuries here in the last week really hurt them uh, on the front seven, losing Carl Lawson, and um, who they lose today? They lost a linebacker today as well. Oh, did um, they? So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't yeah, yeah, to the first for the first six weeks. So those, those injuries are going to be, uh, those injuries are going to hurt them for sure. But um, no, listen, I think that where they're, where they're really suspect and this is where they're, they never really, they didn't put any attention to it in the draft and they didn't spend any money on it either was at, at, corner. at corner. They're really yeah. weak at corner. Yeah. You know, like you're rolling out like Bryce Hall and I don't know who else would be there. Like maybe bless Austin. Like yeah. it's really thin there at corner. Right. And I think, you know, given what Miami did with their receiving core, what Buffalo has, and what, you know, I know New England didn't really, well, they did spend a bit on guys out wide, but ne- nevertheless, I think, you know, you got to be willing, you know, in today's ball, you got to be able to defend the pass, right? And I think the problem there is they're they're still susceptible there and they didn't do enough to invest. And maybe that's next year. Maybe that's the next piece of the puzzle is, you know, they thought they had something there with Lawson on the edge there, and maybe that was going to help. In terms of pass pressure, that's obviously going to help the passing game in terms of passing D. But, I, you know, let's see how it plays out. But they're, they're definitely improved, and I'm with you. Joe Douglas is building something here for the future for sure. So, yeah. Well, let's, uh, you mentioned New England there and, and those wideouts. Let's, uh, let's move up there to, uh, to New England from New York. Bill Belichick back for another year. Uh, like you said, they spend frivolously in, uh, in free agency with Nelson Aguilar and and Kendrick Bourne and John U. Smith and Hunter Henry. Is this not going to be your 2002, 2004, 2006 New England Patriots with a great defense and just an old school kind of football up front? Don't make mistakes. Don't turn the ball over. We'll be in every football game. A double tight end set. And, it's bully. Uh, it's bully ball. You're right. 12 personnel, bully ball, two tight end sets, constantly – you know, beach in the trenches, play good D. Like, if this is going to be, you know, trying to run it down your throat type football, right? Like, that's the thing, right? Like, it's it's not going to be pretty. I think whether it be Cam or Mac Jones, neither one of those guys are really going to be expected to be anything more than, I, I don't want to say game manager, but really, they're not expected to throw the ball down the field 30, 40 yards. It's going to be dink and dunk and, and run the ball effectively and keep it clean. And, yeah, two tight end sets with those two new – you know, prize tight ends they brought in free agency. They're going to be better. Trust me, man. If you don't think that Bill Belichick saw Tom winning that Super Bowl in Tampa didn't piss him the fuck off, like, you know, he walked down to Kraft's office and said, open your checkbook. I can't, you know, like, we're making the playoffs this year and I got to get back to winning ball games. I can't be, you know, sitting in around 500 and, and, and having Buffalo, you know, stomp on our graves here. So I think they're going to yeah. be a lot better this year. Um, 
They're going to be a tough out. I still think Buffalo has a better 53-man roster, though, without question. Oh, hand, hands down. Who's who's starting? Let's start with the quarterback first because I want to get to the defense as well, old boy. Who's starting, who's starting for New England? I think it's going to be Mac Jones. I, think, I, I agree. Well, you know what it is right now? This whole thing that's happening with COVID and Cam as well, too, like, Again, I don't know his vaccination status. I think it's safe to say that he's unvaccinated right now based on some of these things you're hearing from camp right now and how, again, he's being required to be out of the facility for, I think, for five days here where, listen, man, if you're in the middle of a quarterback competition, you can't afford not to be there, right? Like, you got to be in camp right now, like get reps with your first team. And yeah. and from everything that we've seen from these preseason games, make Mac Jones doesn't look out of place. Like he's, he's as advertised, right? It's keeping the ball clean getting it out, good rhythm, you know, getting, hitting guys in motion, you know, like it's, it's, he, he's basically, you know what it is? He looks like the Tom Brady that was there, you know, a couple of years back where it was not, not dink and dunks, but it's, you know, little hooks and this, that little outs, little crossing patterns. Like, you know, it's, you know, he's operating in that kind of that seven to 15 yard space on the field. And it's just kind of taking bits and bites out of you moving the ball down the field, keeping it clean. Right. And, and he doesn't have a strong arm, but I think it's, it's accurate. And that's really all you need right now. And he understands the offense, it seems like, right? So, yeah. Yeah, especially with that three-headed monster uh, running back for New England, like we talked about on the offensive side, what they're going to do. Uh, defensively, you got to like – I know they've got a couple guys coming back from, from the opt- COVID opt-out last year. The addition of Matthew Judon, I think, is going to be crucial to finally give them a little bit more uh, bite off the edge, if you will, in terms of pass rush. But I still got – question marks about their secondary and, and we know Gilmore's hurt right now yeah I think JC Jackson was a, I, I truly believe he's a one-year wonder I don't think he's as good as what he showed last year I'm and I think that. they're just flat out old and slow at at the safety position yeah, I, well, I McCord, got some serious how, questions how many, in that back end well how many years has McCourty been in the league like I feel like every time you turn around the guy's still back there right like it's gonna be at least 10 plus years eventually you're gonna you know you're gonna give up a step here right and, and you're not gonna be the same guy and same thing goes for Gilmore. I know he's still, you know, he's still a great corner, but again, probably about a decade in the league now. It's that eventually, you, you know, you, I'm not saying you fall off a cliff, but speed matters, and there's no way a guy with you know 10 plus years in the league eventually can start giving up a step or two. And you know, we saw in that game in Foxborough last year when you know Diggs was just ripping them to shreds. He ripped he ripped J.C. Jackson to shreds that game, right? Yeah. He just couldn't keep up with them, right? And it was. I don't know, man. I, I'm with you. I think I think they improved on the on the defensive line, though. I, again, they're going to be mean up front. You know, like Henry Anderson. I think where was he used with the Jets last year? Right, that guy's a mean mother. And then you know, Montrevious Adams and you know Devin Godot. Like they they got some guys now. Like they're going to be mean up front. They're hopefully going to be a little bit better against the run here. Um, they're going to be yeah, a good team, man. They're, they're 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 deep up front too, right? Like you start to Diedrich Wise is still back. Lawrence Guy right. is still back. Dante Hightower is coming back off of the, the COVID opt-out. That's um, right. You know, you still got Josh Uche there. Chase Winovich is still fighting for a spot. Christian yeah. Barmar, he, I know he's got that foot injury, but, like, that's you right. line. That's right, you talking to that he drafted. Yeah, that's right. Right? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, you you look at that that front seven um, in, that, in that 34 defense, and they've got probably 10 guys that they can sub in and out, and, and so I think they can withstand injury. I think the – I agree with you. The front seven's not going to be an issue. I got serious questions on the back end. Yeah, I'm with you on that one there. I, I, I could see them. It's, it's a toss-up, right? I think, you know, who finishes second in this division is ultimately going to depend on what team gets more consistent quarterback play or what team gets a, a quarterback that can kind of take that next step. I, again, it's hard for 
you know, Mac Jones to, to come in and, and, and perform at the level of someone like a Tua, given the fact that this is his first year in the league. But, you know, it's it, that's the big thing now. Because I think it's the gap on, under center, which has gotten so wide here, right? Like, that's the thing, is that you got a kid now in Josh who's MVP candidate, arguably top three quarterback in the league when he's healthy and and, and surrounded in that system. And it's there's a big separation in between the Tua's, the Max and Cam's, and then, potentially what we get out of Zach Wilson, right? I think that's, that's the biggest issue here. It's like, if you just look at, you know, who has the advantage under center and who has the advantage, you know, in terms of, you know, coaching consistency in terms of coordinators on both sides and whatnot, like just so many things pointing in, in Buffalo's favor. Right. But yeah, let's go, let's go over to, the, to Miami here. And what, what are your thoughts on the dolphins this year? Big guy. Miami's Miami's, you know what? They're a team that intrigued me because they come off of the 10 win season. Um, don't make it into the playoffs and everything's looking up and it's, you know, the next step for two. And they do some nice things on the offensive line. I think drafting the Eichenberg kid out of Notre Dame was, was great. They make this trade a couple weeks ago for Greg Little. Matt Skewer comes over from, from Baltimore, not even number one on the depth chart right now, but they're trying to build that offensive line. I got some question marks there in terms of the offensive line. You know, do you like the, the wide receiver pick with Waddle? Of course you do. Sure. You know, you, you've got another weapon, Gasecki, Parker, Waddle. Like it's, you're starting now to, to build a nice little offense, and they're surrounded with some pieces. But my major question with Miami is, obviously, my number one question is is obviously Tua, and I think it comes sure. down to that. But I'm not sold on this defense. I'm not sold, and here's why I'm not sold. Oh boy, who's who's? I'm just gonna read you some names, right? Christian Wilkins. Raquan Davis, Emmanuel Agba, Jerome Baker, Andrew Van Winkle, and coming over from the Houston Texans, Bernardrick McKinney. I'm with who, you, man. That front seven doesn't scare you. Who's 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 rushing the passer? Well, I guess they're hoping this kid out of Miami here comes in and is able to do something. Although, listen, I know it's early, but I think you could arguably say that the Bills end up getting the better edge rush out of Miami right now. Like it looks like it after two preseason games, what you're hearing out of camp. Like, yeah. I'm not saying that Russo is going to end up being a better pro. It's way too early to tell. But, man, I'm telling you, like, Jalen Phillips hasn't really been, you know, impressing. And, yeah, I'm with you, man. Like, that front seven isn't scary. It really doesn't. Now, they're, the back end is is rock solid. Obviously, everyone knows yep. that, especially a corner, right? But it's that front seven. I'm with you. How are they going to generate any kind of pressure on the quarterback? They're going to have yeah, to scheme it up, right? So, 100%. You got, and that, that's that's my point is, is that when you got to scheme it up, and, and we saw that, and we've seen this with Buffalo now, I think it five, six times in a row. It's it, when you're within your division and you've got to scheme up pressure, it's the same thing. And Diggs talked about it. It was on, it was on a podcast or somewhere, uh, ESPN, he did an interview or whatever, and he talked about it, to him the, the easiest team to, scheme, to game plan for in the division is Miami on, in terms of offense versus defense because they know they're going to come. They're going to play yeah. mono on mano. They're going to play man on man on the outside. Because they've got to scheme up pressure inside because they don't have a pass rusher. You're and right. When when Buffalo lines up four wide, you know, with Emmanuel Sanders, Gabe Davis, Cole Beasley, and Stefan Diggs, and Dawson Knox, like eventually, or at least 15, 20 times a game, they're gonna beat their man and it's gonna be a big play. And we've seen that from those Buffalo Miami matchups over the last since Josh has been in town. Oh, he's shredded them. That's been that's always. I bet. I, again, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I'm I'm willing to go ahead and guarantee that 
he's put up, you know, whether it be, you know, all these multiple players of the week, AFC players of the week, and, you know, these like, you know, 400, 300 plus yard games against Miami, multiple touchdown throws. Like he's always shredded them. Even in his rookie year, he had, he often did well against yep. Miami as well too, right? So yeah, and, let, and let's talk about the offensive side of the ball there in Miami. Like, what do you make? I got two things for you. First of all, what do you make of that running game? Because it wasn't great last year. I think it was like, you know, it was a bottom bottom third in the league in terms of, you know, I think they averaged as a team under four yards a carry. And they didn't do anything really in the offseason. You know, they didn't invest any draft capital in that position. And they didn't really spend any money on it in free agency. And they're walking in with, you know, a combination of what, Malcolm Brown and Miles Gaskin, like, what do you think? Do you think they did enough to protect? Because, you know, we've always talked about how do you protect a, a young kid? Well, you give him some, some some semblance of a run game, right? At least have them respect the run. And, and I don't think any team really respects that that run game in terms of, you know, what they have in the backfield. And, you know, really the strength of that offensive line, that really – I know it's getting better, but it, it, there's still a lot of unproven young, you know, rookies in that offense or, like, first, second-year guys there that – haven't firmly firmly established themselves yet. Like, what do you think of make of that run game yeah. in Miami? That and that's the key is is it, the writings the writings out on a on a national level when you look at what Miami's done. Like they've they've been reaching for tackles and interior offensive linemen. They're still making moves on the daily, and it's not moves like like Bean and and Belichick make or made when he we were winning all those championships and and winning all those divisions where they're they're adding depth pieces here or. Like they're no, making they're looking for the, starters now. That's they're right, for starters. Yeah, they're they're making moves. You know, a month before the season starts, hoping that they can pick this guy up and he can walk right in and start. Well, that's that doesn't like you're going to find a needle in the haystack every once in a while, but that doesn't work on the daily, right? So yeah, I think Malcolm Brown will help a little bit in the fact that he's a one cut runner and he he'll get north and south for you and he, he can help them in terms of keeping on schedule down and distance wise for Tua. Um, a little bit there, like he can keep them in the second and sevens and seconds and six. So I think that'll sure. help a tiny bit as compared to Gaskins, uh, a little bit more of a balanced type of runner. And he's going to, you know, lose you a yard or two from time to time. And you find yourself at that, you know, second and 10, second and 11, second nine. And, you know, those down in distances where the defense has the advantage. Right. So, sure. um, but no, did they do enough to, for the, for overall, for a team to come in and have to, scheme up and game plan for it not a chance the offensive line like i said right from the start major questions in my mind and same with the defensive line i'm not i'm not sold on this miami squad and i look at a one through 53 and i don't know you know i know we don't have the final 53 yet we're still a couple weeks away here but i just look at you know the 80 guys that are left on that roster as of tonight and the 80 guys left on that New England roster. And I, I personally like the 80 guys better on New England's roster than I do on Miami. I'm with you there too. One, one last point here for you for Miami until we go to, till we go to Buffalo here, but what do you think about this experiment here, you know, at the OC position, you know, they let Chan walk, or I guess he retired, but basically it was more of like a, it sounds like probably more of a forced retirement based on the fact that I think he realized this wasn't really working out there and he wasn't in their plans long-term, but what do you make of this co-coordinator type thing situation? They're going to try and, and roll out Miami. Like, I don't know, man. I don't love it. I know that a lot of teams effectively have some type of a co-coordinator where you have a guy in the chair and the, and the head coach kind of in there calling plays or providing input as well too. But what do you make of it? And do you think they're going to open it up for this kid? They think they're really going to let Tua like kind of open things up a bit. Now that he has more weapons there and it's second year, you know, with the franchise, like, 
he can't be as conservative as he was last year in terms of, you know, yards per attempt being, you know, significantly shorter than a lot of these other young explosive kids in the league. Like he's going to have to open things up because if they try and dink and dunk, like there's just no way you're going to be able to compete with Buffalo who's going to try and, you know, put 30 plus on you every game. Right. And, and you're going to have Josh bombing it down the field and stretching things out. Like, do you think they're going to let this kid open things up a bit here and, and let him, you know, try and make a mistake or two? Yeah, so I'll, I'll go with your first point first on the co-coordinator thing. Like Bill, Parz, Bill Parcells always said, if you want me to cook the meal, let me buy the groceries. So, yeah, no, right? Like, it, I just don't think it works. It, it's just too, too different. No matter how, how much they have the same philosophies, the same thing, there's, there's all those intricacies of a different vision and, um, you know, different play calling and, and all those things. Like it's, it's gotta be one person's vision, right. Or, or you know, the head coach and, and that head you. coach has a vision of, okay, this is what we want our offense to be. This is what we want our, and then they go and hire that coordinator to make that work or, or to pr- produce that vision. Right. If you walk into a head coaching position and you look at, you know, okay, I got a, I got a better defensive squad than I do an offensive squad. So, and my offensive squads, you know, a little lacking in weapons. So what are we going to do? We're going to run the football a little bit more. We can go some play action. I'm going to go get me a, a zone blocking scheme where I can play action off of that a little bit. I'm going to go find me a Gary Kubiak or I'm, you know what I mean? And I'm going to, I'm going to fit my vision for, and I'm going to go find that coach that can provide that. I.e just like McDermott did in 2017, right? He went out and found Rick Dennison. I, I, yeah. I, can, I can coach the defense. I need an offense that can move the ball, score a few points, but will be in every game. I don't want them to turn the football over. Okay, that's not working. I got my defense to a, a, you know, a top 10, top 5 level. Now we're improving the offense. I've got to go get me a better offensive coach, more creative, more this, more that. He goes out and he finds Brian Dayball. It's got to be the vision from from – from the head coach that comes down and, and that person's hired, you can't have two different people there. Um, in terms of the offense, you, you've got to open up the offense for Tua. Uh, you've got to find out year two. He's got to, he's got to take some sort of step here. You're, you're bang on. You, you can't be that conservative. Uh, you can't not take a step here. The, the Miami Dolphins for the, for the future moving forward have to be able to walk in, whether they make the playoffs or not, or whether they, they you know exceed the 10 win level or not they have to without question walk into year three with Tua Tungavailoa and say he is our franchise quarterback yeah because if they can't because right now they walked into year two and they can't say that they can't they can't they couldn't look the league in the eye and say he's our guy they may they may blow smoke here and there and and run the chimney stack a little bit but it's a crock of shit they don't know if he's the guy they've got to find that out got to open up the offense I'm with you so well, let's finish it. Let's finish it off here before we send you on your merry way here, old boy, with the old Buffalo Bills, um, the class of the division. You look at you look at this roster, and I, you know what I thought to myself. I looked at it this afternoon as I was prepping for for our chat here. There's going to be some teams around the league that get a lot better from the Buffalo Bills cuts. Hundred percent. Yeah. Hundred percent. You know, specifically at, at wideout, and you know even offensive line where they have some depth there as well too, right? Like there's, there's just, and then obviously you saw today, I think who's it? They let Tyrell Adams let go today. Like, you know, yep. there's, there's guys that like, that's the thing. And, and Bean and, and McDermott talked about this, about 
you know, creating these competition for jobs and just improving the overall depth throughout the team. And yeah, like there's guys out there battling for, for playing spot. I don't like of that 53 man roster. I think you can go ahead and make a case that, you know, say 45 of those spots are like firmly entrenched. You can pretty much bank on it that they're going to be there and that they've already secured these jobs. But you know, like the depth there at defensive line and what you're seeing there, there's a bunch of good guys. You know, you're talking about guys like Vernon, but I'm not saying Vernon, Vernon Butler's going to get cut, but guys like that, of that ilk are being talked about of being potential cuts here, even young, you know, young guys like Bam Johnson or whatnot. Again, I'm not saying that they're going to get cut, but they, they're, there's conversations that need to be had here about, you know, what is this roster going to look like here? So, so what do you think here? You know, he signs a big deal had a great season last year, took a leap bigger than I think anyone. You can make a case that no one took a bigger leap around the league last year than Josh Allen. No, not even close. Not even close. He was, and you're seeing it this year in in the, you know, the top 100 list, right? I know that you take it for what it's worth, but listen, man, this isn't the league. This isn't, this is the players voting for it. So there's, I, I do often respect it more than, you know, a bunch of media pundits. These are the boys. These are your peers. These are the guys in locker room or across the hall from you that are voting you into that spot. This guy's top ten player in the league, right? Like that's that's it, right? And and where yeah. was he last year? Like he was, he cracked the list, but he was like, you know, what in that eighty in to ninety spot? Nineties, yeah, I think it was in the ninety spot. Yeah, yeah. right, because yeah. everyone knew what he had. There was potential, but they hadn't seen the consistency. They hadn't seen that, you know, that passing ability in terms of three hundred yard games or, or whatnot. And listen, man, I think you know deep down inside, is there a small party that kind of gets concerned that he's you know the next Carson Wentz? You know, for me, it's always it's the injury concern with Josh. It always will be, right? You see the way he carries himself, the way he, you know, tries to get that extra yard and, and trying to, you know, stiff arm linebackers and defensive ends. I always get worried about someone wrenching on his throwing arm or whatnot or a knee injury. Like, remember that play last year with Joey Bosa in that Chargers yeah. game where he, like, Chargers game sacked him and it was just all that weight and pressure on his knee. He thought, oh, you know, there he is. There's ACL done for the year. That's it. You know, here comes Barkley. But, I think this year, what we have seen, though, for what it's worth, is that the upgrade at backup with Trubisky there now, if Josh is done for a certain portion of the year, if something happens, he gets banged up or whatnot, this offense, this team is so deep now that they have a, a, a backup plan in Trubisky, at least it looks like it so far, that they're not going to miss a beat, right? I think they're going to be right there regardless if Josh is fully healthy or not. I think, obviously, you need him there to, in order to go all the way, but if he's out for you know a couple weeks here or there with a, a minor you know bump and bruise here or there, they're not going to be off the grid here they're going to they'll still be able to compete and they're going to have a guy in the center who is maybe not as athletic as josh but someone who can run this, at least the same playbook like barkley couldn't run that same book but, but at least with, with trubisky you can run the same playbook for the most part right 100 so. percent. yeah no doubt and you know it, it's uh to the to your point about the injuries with josh and i've said this to you before off air is the thing that that you know, it, it always worries you with with him, with the with the way he plays and how much of a competitor he is. But what I think people lose a little bit of sight of and forget is that he's fucking six foot four and he's two hundred and fifty pounds. He's the same size as these guys. Hundred percent. Like it, this isn't this isn't you know Doug Flutie we're, we're trotting out here at at five nine and a buck eighty five. You know, going against John John Randall at uh, at six three two two ninety right like. He's a grown ass man, and he yeah. is a, he's a big boy, right? So he can handle himself. So I am. A, I, you're always a little bit worried, but what you loved about last year's step was just the 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 delivery from the pocket, 
Um, the accuracy from the pocket, the pocket presence, the ability to move left and right and, and throw dimes. Like what was that one stat like through eight weeks or whatever? Like he was like 140 QB rating when rolling right or something like that. And 90% completion. Like it was just absolutely ridiculous. And then they tried to hem him in and get him to go left. And that didn't work either. Like it was, it was crazy. Um, out of all the eight teams I look at tonight to kind of round out uh, round out our conversation here, I look at this team, and, and for all the listeners out there, you can call me bias all you want, but you look at this squad, this Buffalo Bills squad, and when you look at it from 1 to 80, that's on paper as of Tuesday, August 24th tonight, out of the eight teams we talked about, it's the only team that you legitimately look at and say that's a championship roster. 100%. It's a top five roster in the league. Yeah. Top five. Top five. It is. You can make a case that it's, you know, it's, you know, it's them. It's KC. It's Cleveland. It's yep. Baltimore. It's Tampa. It's. And and the Rams now with Matt Stafford. And the Rams and, and maybe Green Bay, although yep. not. And Green Bay. You know, yeah. Yep. That's it, man. That That's that's the creme de la creme. Everyone else needs a break or two their way, right? Talk to me about, before we leave here on on the Bills. Talk to me about this pass rush, man, because I think everyone knew they needed to get better. They needed to get younger. They saw what they invest in terms of the draft capital with the first two picks. Talking about the pass rush. Talking about Rousseau. Talking about AJ. Like, what do you think, man? Because I'm super excited about this young pass rush now. Yeah, you know, I, I saw Bruce Smith was there on the on, you know he was in Buffalo today for the yeah for the Jim, Jim Kelly, Kelly Classic and he was yeah. coaching up like Rousseau and the boys. Like that's just, you love seeing that shit, man. It's great. Here's the thing with the pass rush, right? And I think we're going to find out real early and real fast. Last year, last year, when you looked at, at the, the snap counts, Hughes and Addison started, as the year went on, started to creep up into, the, you know, they started out the year, you know, even I think Addison at the start, but was just catching his wind, was like 40%, 50%. And then it just kept creeping up 60 because they realized that they were the best two pass rushers. If we can get a step out of AJ Epinesa and we can get some deliverance from Greg Rousseau or Boogie Basham or Bam Johnson finally adds, gets a little bit more consistent. If he ends up making this 53 man roster, which I believe he will because of the injury injury, to, to Harry Phillips. Yeah, um, too bad, but yeah, yeah, I agree. So I think if we can get a step there, that brings allows you to bring the snap counts, keeps them more level. And if you can get a true rotation and a true 50-50 mix, I think it makes Hughes and Addison better. The healthier they are longer into the season, the better they become. I, th- I just think by the time the playoffs and that AFC championship game rolled around, those boys were, they're just too long in the legs to last that long of a season playing that amount of percentage of snaps. I think you're going to need a push from, from the young guys. And it would be even better if they push them to a backup role and allow them to be more of um, a situational pass rushers. But even if we can get a 50-50 mix, I think this pass rush has got potential to cause some damage, uh, not only within the division, but within the AFC. Yeah, I'm with you, man. It's all about keeping those guys fresh, right? Like, you know what, Hughes and Addison are going to be 33 and 34 on opening day. That's yeah. that's old, man. There's a lot of miles on those tires. Both those boys have been in the league for more than a decade. It's, you know, I'm with you. You don't you don't need those boys to be on the field. 
you know, 60, 70% of the time. There's no way, not anymore, man. Let these young guys go because especially like Epineza, they're talking about like, you know, that body change and how he dropped all that weight from Iowa and when he's at Iowa and just how he's changing his game now to more of that speed rush game rather than it's a pure power rush, right? And it's just, he's bringing a different dimension. And I'm sorry, man, but like there's a couple games there, or I guess the game against Detroit where you had Rousseau on one edge and you had, you know, Epinesa on the other side. Hopefully we get a, you know, Ed Oliver taking another step and really being like a difference maker than what you'd expect from a top 10 pick, right? Yeah. And then, you know, you got Starback, right? And and hopefully he's back and he's clearing things up. He's gobbling up bodies in the middle there. And it's just maybe that hopefully frees up, you know, Edmonds to take a step. Like, I, I, I really do think that the, the front seven was maybe a little underwhelming last year. And a lot of it had come down to do with health, right? Like, Edmonds and Milano weren't healthy for a lot of the year. And he had an aging front four, I think, that that infusion of youth up front getting star back hopefully now you got Edmonds in his fourth year like taking that next step to being a true captain in the middle of that of that defense like he's still a young kid man like that's the thing with the trade everyone you know looks past the fact that he came into the league at like 20 21 years old right like he's still yeah. a baby right he's still a kid so I, I'm super jacked up man like I think yeah. You know, right he's, now the- he's he's four years he's four years in a, and he's the same age as what some guys are being drafted as right now well, that's what I mean, right? Like yeah. he's just he came in as as a as a, like a project who had these you know these physical measurables that were just off the charts out of Virginia Tech, and it's you know he shows you glimpses every once in a while. I think for me, it's always been about I just want him to like to dictate the play and be more like you know like geez, man, like what Darius Leonard was in that same draft. Like that that always kills you, right? As you see what yeah. he's become and you see what. The, what the Bills took with with Edmonds and where he's at four years into it, and you know I don't need a, seen... a few few more impact plays. I think is what that's we're all it for. is, man. That's yeah. all it is. It's just you know a pick here, there, or a sack, or you know making a big stop in coverage or doing something like a big stop on like you know third and four and stuffing the guy, you know, uh, you know with a yard to go, like something like that to really like you know I, I think it, the, the thing is though is. It's it's a unit, right? And it's really I think everyone's all going to depend on everyone being healthy, and everyone taking that next step, right? And I think you know if you get a, a step forward from Ed Oliver, like I said, and those two young linebackers and these young kids off the edge, like watch out, man, because you yep. know they're already there. I are I you know listen, I don't you and I are going to say we're biased here, but the are going to be got one of the best safety tandems in the league. Top five safety tandem in the league. I know he gets no respect, but yep, you know, definitely the most underrated. That's for sure. Most underrated, man. And yep. you know these captains there in the middle, and then you got a, a lockdown kid at CB one and Trey White, and now it's just a matter of you know who slots in at CB two, and and that's really it, man. Like, there's no excuse. There really is no excuse here, right? Like, assuming everyone's fully fit and healthy, there's no reason why this isn't a you know a 12, 13 win team and they should be knocking on the door again, another AFC championship game. They should be right there. So no, no doubt. Old boy. Always love talking a little ball with you, buddy. A lot of fun, buddy. I know it went a little bit longer than what you're probably hoping for, but you know, it's just, <laughs> we could go on for hours. You're right. It's, it's a blast, buddy. I love talking with you and you know, we're getting close now. What a couple of weeks away and we're ready to go. We're ready to go. It's, it's, Beautiful. uh, can't wait, pal. This is when, you know, when you get fall, you get college ball and pro ball up and running again. Like, it just feels like things are, I don't know. Right now, you're these are dog days of sports, right? You got nothing. You got, you know, you got, you know, these August baseball games where they don't fully mean a whole lot just yet. And really now you're just sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting for, for anything, for right? You got it. 
Well, awesome. for all the listeners out there, we'll uh, we'll let old boy go, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Here comes the. Here comes the. Here comes the. Y'all don't really want it like yeah. Here comes the. Real life passion for real life sports. All right, listeners, welcome back from break. Hope you enjoyed a little football talk, breaking down AFC and NFC East with the old boy. Great to have him back on after our summer break. We could talk all night long about uh, NFL football, that's for sure, but... uh, Let's get into the golf portion. Uh, we went a little bit long with the football side, so we'll have to shorten this golf portion up a little bit. We'll go fast and furious like we did last week. And then as we uh, approach the uh, the Tour Championship here in a couple weeks in the FedEx Cup playoffs and the Solheim Cup, we'll get a little bit more uh, golf heavy and a little bit more of an even split for all of our golf listeners out there. But let's start with the women's side. A um, couple big weeks here. Just coming fresh off of uh, the Women's British Open, and Carnoustie did not disappoint. It came down, as always Carnoustie does, to holes 15 through 18. That was the crucial part for um, for the ladies this week. Anna Nordquist takes home that uh, Women's British Open, making her a three-time women's champ. Uh, minus 12 was the winning score. Not quite what I thought it was going to be. From the forecast earlier in the week, uh, was supposed to be wet, windy, and nasty, but uh, wasn't too bad out there. Had a little bit of rain uh, on uh, late Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, but uh, no combination of wind and rain because that's when it gets uh, real tough out there. A couple decent picks uh, for Dutch and I. We had a top ten with uh, Aria Jatanagarn um, and uh, Aria uh, Thitical was uh, T48, so she was hot to start, but uh, faded off on Dutch there. But uh, a great event. And folks, if you don't think these ladies can play, uh, you need to check yourself. The golf course was set up anywhere between 65 and 6,700 yards all week long. And the winner, Anna Nordquist, she played on the Outlaw Tour. I don't know if you've been following on social media, but I saw this come through um, throughout the course of the winter um last year through COVID and won an outlaw tour event. The course was set up at 7,200 yards. I know it's in Arizona. So the whole 10 to 18% rule, but uh, shot 64. So absolutely these girls can play and it's phenomenal golf being played out there. And now they switch over to uh, the Solheim cup, which is a huge event for them. The Ryder cup for the female side, if you will, at Inverness Golf Club in uh, in Toledo, Ohio, a traditional golf course that uh, we haven't seen too much over the last 25, 30 years. One of those golf courses that uh, was kind of phased out by the USGA and the US Open um, and the PGA. But um, nice to see the ladies once again get on a traditional uh, style golf course. It's hosted six US Opens, a couple US Amateurs, uh, one PGA Championship. I believe Paul Azinger was uh, was the winner of that one. But uh, the fields are set. The, the teams are made. Captain Pat Hurst and um, 
of the U.S. side, and Vice Captain Angela Stanford, who's uh, been in Miss Hurst's ear the entire time. But uh, quite the U.S. squad. It's going to be a good, good battle here. But uh, the U.S. Uh, had a little bit of a different point setup than than the um, than the European side. Actually, kind of switched for uh, comparatively to the men's, the ladies for U.S. and um, Europe in terms of their selection process. The ladies' side went with nine uh, automatic qualifiers, with the likes of Nelly Corda, Daniel Kang, Ali Ewing, uh, Austin Ernst, Lexi Thompson. Jessica Corda, so the Corda twins will be leading that squad. Uh, Megan Kang and Lizette Salas, who were coming off a good finish at uh, the Women's British, and Jennifer Kupcho. And then the picks were uh, Yelimi No, the 20 year old rookie, um, hot sensation. Uh, Mina Harnagai, uh, 31 years old, a um, little bit of a controversial pit, uh, pick. And uh, Brit- Brittany Altimore, second appearance, big, big. Um, appearance uh, a couple of years ago uh, while in Europe. So um, it'll be interesting to see actually both the Ryder Cup and the Solheim Cup are hosted in uh, in America this year. And then the European uh, squad really heavily uh, heavily laden with uh, with some Swedes. Kind of the Scandinavian feel of Emily, uh, Emily Pedersen, Georgia Hall, Anna Nordquist, Sophia Popoff, uh, Charlie Hall, and uh, Charlotte uh, Sing, uh, Singanda were the six automatic qualifiers. So uh, Europe went a little bit different. They used the same kind of pick system as the men's Ryder Cup team, uh, where six automatic qualifiers and six picks. And then the picks for um, Katrina Matthew, the Scot, were uh, Leona Maguire from Ireland, Matilda Castron from Denmark, uh, Nana from Denmark with the with the big finish in the the, the British Open. Selena Bucce, who, who had a huge Solheim Cup a couple years ago. Mel Reed and Madeleine uh, Sagstrom from Sweden. So, really, you're going to see a lot of um, three or four Swedes, a uh, few ladies from Denmark, a few ladies from England, and and then um, the oddball France and and Germany, and a couple other countries in there. But um, Really heavily uh, Scandinavian laden for that European uh, Solheim Cup squad. So it'll be fun to watch that and fun to check that out. On to the men's side. As we move uh, off of the Northern Trust Open and into the BMW this week. Um, quite the finish. Monday finish for the the, uh, the Northern Trust at Liberty National Golf Club. And uh, I thought I had the winner for you folks. I know it was the was one of the favorites. But John Rahm. Uh, Two-shot lead with five holes to play, and his driver just absolutely left him. Um, did not hit a fairway on holes 14 through uh, through 18, or 15 through 18. Missed the last four fairways. Missed a short one on uh, on 14 that I believe kind of threw him for a little bit, of, uh, little bit of a loop. But what a finish, and what a winner in Tony Finau. Um, you've all seen the stats out there uh, in terms of 1,870-some-odd days without the win, uh, 28 wins for Justin Thomas and, and Dustin Johnson in between Tony Finau's wins. And the two guys that were in the playoffs, they went, as much as Rom had the opportunity, they also went out and won, won the, the, that golf tournament. Tony Finau went out and won that golf tournament. Back 930. 
Cameron Smith, back nine, 31. Birdies 16 and 17, pars 18 to get into the playoff at minus 20. So absolutely uh, phenomenal golf from those two guys. Tough finish for John Rahm. I thought he had it uh, He had it in his hands with the opportunity to, uh, to win. But uh, in terms of as we wind down here with, with two big tournaments left in the BMW and the Tour Championship, you look at this year in, in its entirety, and they mention it on the telecast, it's the year of the playoff. Uh, nine playoffs. You know, you start out at the century with Harris English um, and then his big nine-hole playoff um, with Hiscock um, at, at the Travelers. Leishman and Cameron Smith with their playoff with the, uh, the South Africans, uh, Usti hitting it in the water on the right in the first playoff hole. Uh, then you go to uh, Seamus Power at Barbasol with a playoff victory. Uh, Abraham Answer with a playoff victory at the WGC. Um, the eight-man playoff with Kevin Kisner at the Wyndham. Tony Finau, uh, granted short and sweet, with a one-hole playoff at the Northern Trust. And the Olympics with the six- or seven-man playoff for the bronze medal. So to me, 2021 in golf is the year of the playoff. But um, it'll be interesting to see how these last two weeks finish up in terms of the top 70. What a great story. Philly Mickelson is the last man getting in. And this was a fun event, and it's you know what it's tough to uh, tough to um, to game plan for when you start to look at this event over the last few years in terms of the venues, some great venues, but they move it around. You know, 2018 um, at Aronmac or at Aronmac Golf Club, uh, 2019 at Medina, and 2020 at Olympia Field. Some of those historic venues that they've used. And now in 2021, they're at Caves Valleys in Owing Mills, tying it back. We call this the Triple G Ginger Gridiron and Golf Podcast for a reason because Owing Mills probably rings a bell for some of those diehard Baltimore Ravens fans out there in Maryland. And that is where the Baltimore Ravens have their, uh, their training camp and their facilities. So that's where the PGA Tour boys will be for the BMW Championship this week. Top 70 in the field. Two Canadians in this field as well. And uh, without further ado, let's get over to our picks for the BMW Championship this week. And then we'll finish off with a little U.S. Men's Ryder Cup team, European Ryder Cup team uh, talk next week. But uh, our picks, we'll start with Dutchies. He's throwing them over to me. I love his picks. And he was able to find a little bit of a sleeper with some good value in his uh in his long shot, tough to find a long shot when you've got the top 70 golfers um, in the world currently in 2020, 2021 playing at one venue where I believe it might be 69 because Patrick Reed, um, who we're going to talk about a little bit later on, is out with the double ammonia. So uh, JT is Dutch's big gun of the week at 20 to 1, and he's also mine. Uh, how could you not? In this event, I know the different venues, but T12, he won it in 2019, and uh, T25 in 2020, coming off of a T4 finish last week at the Northern Trust. Gotta love JT, fresh off of his qualification for the uh, the Men's Ryder Cup team. I like that pick. Dutch and I both took him. Victor Hovland is Dutch's next pick, his rock steady pick. Um, European, uh, he'll be a stalwart European Ryder Cupper. Uh, for this Ryder Cup at Whistling Straits and many more to come at 35 to 1 
Dutch is taking him as his rock steady for the BMW. And the value pick. We're calling it value. We're not calling it the uh, the sleeper or the, uh, the underdog of the week. Keegan Bradley, nice pick here, Dutch. 90 to 1. I like it. So good three solid picks for Dutch, JT, Hovland, and Keegan. Obviously, you know my big gun of the week's JT. My rock steady pick fighting for a, a Ryder Cup spot. Currently right now in 11th. This is a big golf turn for him. Uh, 2019, he was second in this event. 2020, he was 12th in this event. Quietly coming off of a T11 last week with a good weekend finish. 25 to 1. Some decent value there. I'm going with another American, and that's Patrick Cantley. So I got JT, I got Cantley. I don't take him very often. I don't want to come across as bi- uh, biased. But you know what? T30 in 2020 in this event. T7 in 2019 in this event. Last week with another quiet, great final round, hopping all the way up into T8 at 40 to 1. I'm taking our Canadian boy, Listowal, Ontario, Corey Connors, as my value pick of the week at 40 to 1. I like it. He stripes it. If he can get that putter rolling, um, he'll be right in the mix come Sunday here. Moving on, we're going to talk to finish this episode off a little USA Ryder Cup here. Um, as we move closer to the final qualification week here, we will know our automatic six qualifiers and Captain Stricker and company will then, after the Tour Championship, make their final six selections, much like uh, Katrina Matthew made her six selections for the U.S. or sorry, the European um, Solheim Cup team. So over the last probably four or five days, um, we've seen more and more automatic qualifiers come through. Early last week, we saw Colin Morikawa was officially qualified with that number one slot. Uh, I believe he can come off of there a little bit, but he's qualified for the squad. So I'm going to name you the now five qualifiers, three more coming through today. So they've got Colin Morikawa, Dustin Johnson, Bryson DeChambeau, Brooks Kepka, and Justin Thomas as there are five automatic qualifiers. Mr. Tony Finau, fresh off of his Northern Trust victory, moves up six spots. He's all the way up into sixth place. Currently, right now, with one week to go, holding that sixth and final automatic qualification. And then we get into those six picks for Captain Stricker. So good, solid squad shaping up here for the U.S. team. Um, as they're going to have their hands full with this European team, as we'll talk more about them next week. But as you start to break this list down, and and we read some of the names of of, uh, of the the next batch or who would be next on those rankings, you know, you got Xander Shoffley, Jordan Spieth, Harris English, Patrick Reed, Patrick Cantley, Berger, Webby Simpson, Scotty Scheffler, Billy Horschel, Jason Kokrak at 16, Sam Burns. Kevin Kisner at 18, moving up uh, inside the top 20 with that victory. And Philly Mickelson hanging out at 19. And an interesting name at 20, Mr. Kevin Na, probably one of the top three, if not for sure, top five putters in the world right now. Listen, when you when you look at these names, um, 7 through 10, and whether Finau drops down one or two, um, and Shifley gets in, or Spieth or English um, win this week at BMW, and they slide into that sixth spot. Doesn't look like Patty Reed's going to play um, due to that pneumonia. Those three guys, th- those four guys, 
if Patrick Reed's healthy, those four guys, in my mind, are on this squad. Um, and that's Shoffley, Spieth, English, and Reed. Uh, no matter where Reed finishes, if he drops down into 11 or 12 and, and Cantley was, was able to move up. To me, Stricker, in my mind, is looking at, he's picking two guys. Because when, when you've got those names right there, as well as they've played, a guy like Harris English won twice here in 2021. Um, he, he's on that squad. You know, um, you're not going to turn away Shoffley. Jordan Spieth re- rebuilt his game. Patrick Reed, probably the best American Ryder Cupper uh, going right now over the last four to six years here. So you've got two picks, and, and you drop now all the way down from 11 to 20 here. And there's some some good names, but but who does Stricker go with? You know, do you go with the veterans like a, like a Webb Simpson and, and Phil Mickelson? Do you go with a guy that can put the ball, put the lights out or, or two good putters in Horschel and, and Nah? Do you go with, you know, some of the younger guys in Cantley and, and Scotty Scheffler? You know, the two guys I think that, uh, you know, or do you go with the Bulldog and, and Kevin Kisner? T- to me, there's two guys on that list that you can automatically cross off. Uh, I just don't see their fit. I don't see them on this squad. Um, I just don't see a purpose uh, as much as I love them. North Bay native, I picked them last week. I, I just don't see the fit or the long-term um, gains for a guy like Jason Kokrat at his age. Be the first U.S. Ryder Cup p- team for him. Um, he's gonna have to. F- he's gonna have to win one of these last two events. Get himself up inside that top uh, top nine to even have a sniff here of, of getting a pick. And the other guy, Sam Burns. Um, I can't see that happening. To me, it, it, it's truly, um, you could see one-on-one. You could see a veteran. You could see a Webb and a, and a young guy like Cantley or Cantley and Mickelson, something like that. Um, but it'll be real interesting to me who those last two picks are because when you look at that list, I see those first four picks, they're already made. I just can't see coming off any of those uh, four guys that we talked about earlier. But um, it'll be interesting after this week. We'll get our six qualifiers, and we'll go into the Tour Championship knowing who can move up, who can move down, and where that kind of squad is going to shape up and how it's looking here for the uh, 2021 Ryder Cup at Whistling Straits. Um, So real interesting to see. Folks, what a phenomenal episode covering AFC NFC East with the old boy. Hope you enjoyed the in-depth analysis. Just two old friends talking ball. We rifled through a little bit of ladies golf, some men's golf, gave you our picks for the week. U.S. Ryder Cup coming up in a month. Big time for golf. We're talking to some big guests as well, so we'll keep you updated on that front. We're looking at Derek Ingram, Canadian Nationals coach. We talked about Paul Tastori. Uh, Webb Simpson's caddy reaching out to him as well and uh, hoping to have Jeff Shackelford on um, with uh, from Golf Weekly there as well. So some big guests coming up on the golf side. We're always working on the football guests, folks. Glad and thanks to all for tuning in to Triple G, and we'll catch you next week.